Hello and welcome back to the Psychedelic Frontiers podcast, bridging science, medicine and consciousness. In recent years, psychedelics have been shown increased interest as a possible therapeutic agent for the treatment of various mood and mental health disorders, ranging from PTSD and major depressive disorder to anxiety and anorexia. Institutions all over the world are running clinical trials, with many producing promising results, however not without complications and challenges. Today, on the Psychedelic Frontiers podcast, we'll discuss psychedelic-assisted therapies. For which disorders does this emerging treatment show the most promise for? What are the current methodological issues and challenges facing researchers studying this treatment? How generalizable are the results from recent clinical trials? And does psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy have a chance of becoming a mainstream treatment amongst the ever-growing mental health crisis? My name is Ben Claydon, and I'm an undergraduate at the University of York, studying natural sciences, specializing in neuroscience. I'm the president of my university's Drug Science Society, and I'm the co-chair for the Drug Science Student Society Network. I'm also the creator and producer of this podcast. Today, I am once again joined by the fantastic Dr. Torsten Passy. Dr. Passy is a German psychiatrist and professor at Hanover Medical School. He is an expert in altered states of consciousness and psychedelic drugs. Torsten has run various studies on substances including LSD, psilocybin, ketamine, and nitrous oxide, and has years of experience using psychoactive and psychedelic substances in a clinical setting. Welcome back to the show, Torsten. Yeah, thank you, Ben, for that nice introduction, and I'm um, looking forward to our interview today. As am I, as am I. Uh, let's start by briefly discussing the resurgence of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. What has led to its growing popularity as a potential treatment option for mental health conditions? Yeah, there are different reasons from a historical point of view uh, why we see that. Uh, one is, as one can easily think of, uh, that the interruption of research since the 19, uh, uh, late 1960s um, has um, also been kind of a like of suppression or repression of a certain um, field of medical science, which is kind of inappropriate. But however, um, um, uh, during the late 1960s and early 1970s, there were some methodological sound studies which have investigated the use of psychedelic therapy, which is high dose, just one or two experiences, uh, which have might have a life-changing quality. Um, this uh, therapy model is different from the psycholytic model, as we have discussed uh, in another uh, podcast. Uh, the psycholytic model con uh, consists of serial sessions in, a, in the low-dose range uh, embedded in a long-term psychotherapy. So this is quite a different model. However, the psychedelic model has been found uh, during these trial trials in the late 1960s, early 1970s as insufficient, especially if it comes to durability of results. Um, however, this is not very much known. And even today, all people in the Renaissance don't really know these trials, which have been conducted in the uh, earlier times uh, in a methodologically sound design. Um, one could even say, in respect to these results, as the psychedelic therapy model has, has become obsolete. Um, 
um, to go into a little bit more detail, it could be said that there were four studies, high-ranking studies, uh, about the treatment of alcoholism financed by the U.S. American government, by the way, and the Canadian government, interestingly enough. Um, and these uh, trials have all not shown a significant difference in favor of the LSD-assisted psychotherapy compared to a control group treated with the conventional approaches. Um, therefore, um, no, uh, it has to be also mentioned that there were three other trials going on in respect to the use of psychedelic therapy. One was about neurotic outpatients, and this trial has also found nothing uh, significantly in favor of L the use of LSD in the treatment of these patients. So that was frustrate frustrating too. Uh, the other two trials were one was about uh, heroin addicts, which had some success. Um, and the other one was about a terminal cancer patient. And this study was very good controlled and very successful. Uh, and in the so-called psychedelic renaissance uh, during the last 10 years, um, we have also seen uh, patients being treated for uh, anxiety and depression in respect to the impact of a life-threatening diagnosis. And we have seen quite a bit of success in these populations. Uh, this is because, uh, from my personal point of view, this is because these guys have much more resources and resilience on board in comparison to people which have been uh, mentally ill on a more chronic basis, let's say for 5, 10, 15 years. It's quite obvious that if these substances are mainly able to activate self-healing powers, it has a certain logic that patients which are not that much ill can profit more than the chronic patients. And so this is some of the background. So another part of the background is what has happened during the last 35 years in psychiatry. In the beginning of the 1990s, we were quite, success, uh, quite hopeful about neurobiological research methods to clear up the dark... Um, uh, clouds uh, in um, respect to the uh, causes of mental illnesses, especially psychotic illnesses, depressions, uh, OCD, and other mental health disorders. Um, however, uh, 35 years later, we have to, to say that uh, after all these reviews have meanwhile appeared about biomarkers, so specific bi biological properties of the human organism, which can give us evidence that this person, even if we can't see it from the outside, that evidently that person is suffering from schizophrenia because we have seen in the scanner disease and these changes. So what we have found is there are no biomarkers which can be used generally. And so therefore that was a completely frust complete frustration. Then we were look very much looking out for genetic causes of mental illnesses. And we came at last to the conclusion in a, a major review about these results a few years ago that there was nothing going on, really. It means we can't find out about the genetics because it's so complex, we will never get a hint of it. And so therefore, that was also completely frustrating. And if it comes to new psychopharmaceuticals, it was also completely frustrating. So there was nothing significantly, significantly coming up during the last 25 years. And if it comes to other therapeutic strategies, we have also found nothing or discovered nothing of significance. 
and this is a big frustration for psychiatry, and I call it the under pressure in psychiatry in respect to new therapeutic approaches. And this means if there's any kind of hole in this, in, the, in this under pressure, so to say, everything which looks a little bit promising will be immediately sucked in and might even blow to proportions which are completely unrealistic. And this is what I see in respect to the so-called psychedelic renaissance. I'm very happy that research is going on, that therapeutic studies are conducted, but we can also see that the same kind of faults what have been made in the 19, late 1960s are already on the run again. For example, counting on uncontrolled studies and having a lot of frustrations if it comes to more controlled and methodologically elaborated studies, which show again these days, as well as in the late 1960s, that the method is not as effective as wished by the psychiatrists, by the researchers, by maybe the pharmaceutical industry. And therefore, we can be a little bit skeptical about what will happen during the next few years. Um, you might also be interested in the very new fact that MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which is in charge of the uh, trials for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy in post-traumatic stress disorder, has recently announced that all the trials in Europe will be stopped. And if you look at the, so there will be no MDMA-assisted psychotherapy in Europe for at least the next five years, maybe for the next 10 years. And so this is also the uh, bursting the psychedelic bubble, <laughs> so to say. And we see with psilocybin, and we will come later more detail to that, um, we also see with psilocybin that the results are not that much in favor of psilocybin, and there are also complications around. And therefore, psilocybin might, at least in the European system, not make it through. And so therefore, let's see what will come. Yeah. The next few years. yeah. Thank you, Thorsten. Um, I suffice to say, I think criticism and a bit of skepticism will be quite common themes for today's podcast. Yeah. Um, and so one, top, one thing I'd like to discuss, which is, I think, quite broad, is that when many people hear psychedelics, they are still very scared and put off, mainly by the thought of having a bad trip, which is an adverse reaction to the hallucinations. And they can be very traumatizing. Is there any danger of bad trips within a clinical setting on one of these studies? And what steps are taken to minimize this possibility? Yeah, very good question. Uh, the point is that uh, you, we have again to decide what kind of uh, method we are talking about. The psycholytic method, which uses lower doses, is not as dangerous, obviously, as the use of higher doses. And if the use of higher doses might let into a bad trip, which is usually a kind of very heavy state of fear and anxiety, usually mixed with some paranoid thoughts. So nobody can help me out and I'm hopelessly crazy and uh, stuff like that. And my psyche and my, my organism will be altered or damaged forever, these kind of things. And uh, this might be also mixed, as mentioned by you, with some hallucinatory um, features, like you see, for example, one of our experimental subjects uh, saw a big brain hovering in the middle of the room and has been destroyed by different from different angles. And that was the, the symbol of the psychedelic trip. 
because he in his in the later phase of the trip he became horrified out of certain personal reasons um, however these kind of things can happen and um uh, the 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 uh, probability that that will happen in psych controlled psycholytic set settings is much lower but we have seen that even with the best treatment standards which is usually two therapists on board so if one has to make a pause or has to go to the toilet another one will be there sometimes even mixed sexes so that mother and father if you want or brother and sister are present and it is under very nice conditions so more a kind of um uh, living room uh, furniture stuff like that so it's not looking like a clinical environment and a physician in a white coat is coming in with the syringe or stuff like that so all these features can be avoided and have been avoided during the last uh, 10 years in these settings usually and therefore uh, these people have not more anxiety than necessary so to say but what we see is because the researchers have done they have done these questionnaires and scales what we see is that i would say 25% of the uh, persons which have uh, um, um, participated in the uh, trials with psychedelic high dose therapy have had significant amount of, amounts of anxiety during their sessions that might be not as destructive as in a bad trip outside of a clinical environment where no help might be available or inappropriate help or the police might show up and, and put you in, in, uh, in handcuffs and, and take you to a hospital or stuff like that. These kind of stuff is not really happened. So therefore, I think these, these experiences are not really traumatic and they might be also somewhat counterbalanced by the positive effects of the experiences. Um, there is also another way of handling these anxieties by injecting diazepam, a tranquilizing drug, which might immediately eliminate the psychedelic state or the bad trip. So there are measures to even uh, um, counteract these uh, kind of reactions if they are really serious. Yeah. So um, the other reason why people think that usual lay people uh, think that um, these bad trips are a major feature of psychedelic drugs um, because usually we have very selective reporting. So nobody would write in a, in a daily newsletter about good experiences uh, which have taken place, let's say, 100,000 times per day. You know, but if a bad reaction happens and the person has to go to the hospital and may, might show some unusual behaviors, then it is in the press. So there's selective reporting. It is also, in fact, that your ability for self-control might be reduced during the psychedelic drug effect. And that could lead to confrontations with anxieties and pains and psychological issues, which are usually suppressed and put it out of perception. And so, therefore, it can be, it can make you a little bit anxious if you confront sides of yourself and, and maybe the memories of the past, which are not really agreeable. And therefore the people should be careful handling these issues and handling these drugs. Thank you, Torsten. Um, and you've already mentioned a couple of them there, mainly anxiety, um, but alongside the risk of bad trips, various studies, uh, including quite a notable study by Guy Goodwin et al, uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, reported an increase in suicidality in patients that received psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. Mm -hmm. Are there any other potentially adverse effects of classic psychedelics which can interfere with the therapeutic process? 
Yeah, and there are. But let me just say a few words about the suicidality issue. So we have um, usually on a clinical level, we have three different uh, ways of looking at these things. Means uh, first off, you're looking at that person's suicidal thoughts. Some people have suicidal thoughts uh, every week, but it's more like an emergency exit kind of thing. And it eases their pain, so to say. Oh, there's an emergency exit. Oh, that's good. I can relax again, <laughs> kind of that. So this is this is not really threatening. Uh, if it comes to more serious uh, ideation, it usually includes planning of some suicidal action. You know, that might be more significant on a clinical level. Usually we are looking out for these kind of things if it really comes to the threatening ones. And there might be also even a suicide attempt. You know, what we have seen in these studies is that there were uh, people which had uh, problems with with integrating these experiences and and these experiences as it has been said in the past that these substances are catalysts of psychological processes and that means if you are in a depression have already some crude thoughts about yourself maybe bad ones about the world and have also emanated you have also uh, elaborated about suicide that might come up during the session or even afterwards when you were in a little more, bit more open or labile state and so therefore the risk might be enhanced because of these treatments um, it could be argued and it has been done that way uh, it could be argued that uh, okay in every trial with depressive patients you will have some which might develop suicidal ideation or even suicide attempts or, or suicide. Even. So this is quite normal. Yeah, that's somewhat right. But if you really look at the numbers, you will find out that they had three different treatment groups, one with one, one milligram psilocybin, which is quite an underdose, if you want, then 10 milligrams, which is a low, very low dose, even lower than psycholytic, uh, and 25 milligrams. And what you can see, can you what you can see in the numbers is that um 25 now the the 25 milligram group had much more suicidal ideation than the other two groups and so it, there might be a connection to the uh, dosing with a drug i would say so from the in respect to the numbers yeah. why do you think that might be the case that a higher dose is increasing the risk of suicidality or suicide yeah, it ideation? could be that that's the potential for change in the brain what they call idealized, I think, uh, neuroplasticity, the possibility for changes in the brain and psyche might be higher on a higher dose. But that means if the change cannot come to a good outcome in respect to behavior, then you might go into a more irritating uh, fashion or, or frame in your psychological realm. And so it might enhance the risk of crude behavior and even despair, or, you know, you have some insights and you can come out with them in your behavior, for example, that might produce tensions and even despair. And so that these thoughts might be, might be mobilized. That's a really interesting take on it. Uh, and just going back to what you mentioned, because you said that if we are treating a patient pool with depression, there's obviously going to be a sub pool of those which are have a very high possibility of already reporting suicidal ideation. 
And I suppose this brings us onto a general point, onto the fact that these studies are done on clinical populations and the substances we are giving them have the increase to have, a, have the possibility to increase lots of these negative effects. So are there many issues in giving people with depression or anxiety or even people with schizophrenia or any of these things that make psychedelic therapy completely not possible to happen? Yeah, that's right. So there is a lot of um, um, mental health disorders which have to be excluded from these therapeutic approaches or using these therapeutic approaches. Um, mainly psychosis, for example, specific forms of depression, for example, as far as I can see, dementia or specific, specific personality disorders which are too unstable to be treated or which are too malign to be treated, for example, Paranoid personality disorder might be not the best diagnosis to treat with these substances, which can, <laughs> under certain circumstances, induce these paranoid thoughts. And so there are a lot of uh, people which have to be excluded. And that's another kind of thing about the recent trials, because the inclusion criteria usually exclude patients with a suicide, uh, suicidality and suicidal ideation. So it means that you have already selected the, the patients according to this uh, inclusion criteria and means you, you have already excluded a lot of the patients which have depression and have a more severe form of depression and therefore suicidal thoughts. You know, that means the trials might show not results of a representative sample. They might show a very selective a subgroup of these patients so it might the risk might be enhanced if it comes to the real population outside of the trials but um, we don't and i was just wondering actually related to that do you know of any meta-analysis that have looked at the generalizability of any of these studies onto yeah, the general population uh, there are there are i would not say meta-analysis because that's not the right way to say to talk about this i mean not the right terminology yeah but um there are reviews which have looked at these problems and they have found that the bias by enthusiastic researchers um or produced by enthusiastic researchers enthusiastic therapists enthusiastic patients is a significant factor and also still the blinding problem, which means uh, if the person gets an, a non-effective placebo compared to a drug, which in respect to blood pressure or eye pressure might not come to your personal attention and your perception. You, you don't know if you got the real drug or not, but the the doctor might measure it on your eye pressure that you got the right one or not, but you don't see it and you don't feel it. But with the psychedelic psychedelics, it's obvious that you have gotten a drug or not. And therefore, the placebo effect might, might be much more enhanced. And the so-called nocebo effect means the frustration of the person which might not have gotten the drug might be also enhanced. And so you get quite a difference in between these two groups. And that might also make up an illusion about the efficacy of that treatment. Re think again about the medication, about blood pressure. You might not feel it. You might not have side effects. So there is a completely blinding in respect to the efficacy of that drug. But, uh, you know, with the psychedelics, it's obvious 
that you have gotten a drug and or if you have not, it's obvious that you have not. And therefore, these kind of uh, problems have been uh, much brought up during the last few months even. And as far as I know, the FDA has published a few days ago a first draft of a statement about how to conduct trials, clinical trials with psychedelics, because they have found so many problems and irregularities that they are right now coming into the business, trying to define how this these studies have to be conducted. And I think because they seem to be very open by publishing just a draft, waiting for responses from researchers and therapists, which they are eager to include in their uh, concerns, uh, there might be a way out of these problems, at least somewhat, so that we, for example, might come to a special kind of uh, probability calculations, which kind of might say, okay, let's put that result three points lower because we have these and these and these factors biasing possibly the results so that we can take the results serious again in a more kind of humble fashion, if you want. Well, that sounds very promising. Um, and I think we will totally discuss some of the methodological issues, particularly blinding, a little bit mm -hmm. later on. Um, but I think there's another very, very important aspect to this, which is that whilst lots of studies report an initial decrease in depressive symptoms within the first six months after psychedelic-assisted therapy, many patients return to baseline after a year. Um, so is there anything that can be done to combat this regression into depressive states? Yeah, and the most recent results from Germany, which I've heard about, um, is that uh, they have realized that these are just short-term effects. Most patients are back to depression in months, not in half a year even. Uh, in some patients, it's more durable, it seems. Um, but you have that within the placebo group too, by the way. <laughs> yeah, somewhat not as much with as with the active drug. Uh, but what they have seen here is that a lot of patients don't react to this therapeutic modality even, and so you can't. They have said around thirty percent have no reaction, so to say, and so therefore. Uh, that might also present a problem, and uh, but the problem with the durability of the results or of the betterments that has been found in the uh, late uh, studies in the late 1960s too, and therefore the the major treatment center in the U.S. was uh, using psychedelic therapies, the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center, came to the conclusion that they have to leave the psychedelic approach in favor of the psycholytic approach or as what they call the extended psychedelic paradigm, which means you have also a series of psycholytic low-dose session going, sessions going on in the treatment, and then you have one, two, three high-dose psychedelic session in the process. But they calculated that there is, or they, they recognized, uh, that there, there is, that it is necessary to provide a much longer treatment process uh, uh, to uh, come to durable, durable results in the majority of patients. And so that could be one uh, way out of that problem. And most recently, the leader of the German trial, Professor Gründer, has stated in an interview, we need 
to, to make it more effective and durable, we need more context, more sessions, more psychotherapy. You know, and I think that's the way to go, that we need more treatment and we have to be more humble and the work with the patient is not wishful thinking. It is a work on an every week basis, very seriously, and it might take long time. And I suppose there's obviously a lot of financial issues related to that, as well as accessibility. Um, just out of curiosity, did he mention a specific time frame of how long this kind of therapeutic regimen might take place for in order to maximize durability? No, that's not the case, but um, I can, could give you an idea about that. I would say for a depressive patient uh, under non-clinical treatment conditions means that he's not in the clinic and influenced by the whole environment instead of being at home and influenced by that environment all the time. He's out of his routines in the clinical environment and people show in the frame of six to 10 weeks significant betterments usually in the clinical environment if they are on a, in a, on a ward, on a psychotherapy ward, for example. So in these, under these conditions, uh, 10 weeks might be a significant amount of time with a few sessions afterwards, conventional psychotherapy session, as well as maybe drug sessions, coming back to the clinic for one day or two, and then going back home again. So I think half a year up to two years might be necessary for most patients to, to come to better results, which are more durable and which are really kind of uh, letting them the time and possibility to mature in their personality organization. That needs time and effort. It's not so easy to do that with one, two kind of shock-like irritations of the brain, if you want to, because these routines and the perceptual patterns and the behavior patterns are much deeper ingrained than uh, psychiatrists would like. Yeah, no, I, I suppose that sounds totally right. Um, and just out of curiosity, uh, could you think of the reasons why having this longer therapeutic regimen might be beneficial? Is it to do with integration? Is it to do with having supports? What type of things actually might be the reason for this durability alongside yeah. psychotherapy? So we, we uh, to uh, be not too speculative about these factors, we could say, okay, conventional psychotherapy, maybe not in the UK, but on continent, <laughs> continent, continental Europe needs usually between 50 and 200 hours on a weekly basis. That implies one, two, three, four years of regular psychotherapy. And these long-term treatments usually lead to significant changes and betterment of symptoms and less physicians consultations, less uh, away from the work and, and so on. So we could say, okay, that's the usual way. If we are able to, uh, to implement these very intense experiences under the influence of psychedelics into this treatment scheme of having a patient under therapy one, two, three, four years. If we could implement, let's say, in a usually two-year course of therapy, we could implement four sessions, for example. I would bet that we could minimize the treatment to a year or a little bit more instead of two. So this could save money. But this is another view then uh, 
we want to give one, two times a medication, and then we want to get rid of the patient's depression. And yeah. if that would, would work, it could be less expensive. But even this would cost 5,000 pounds or euros for a treatment for two psilocybin sessions with two therapists. It's easily 5,000. So if you look what costs usual psychotherapy, one year is less than 5,000 of conventional psychotherapy. So, you know, these things really have to put out. Uh, my personal uh, preference would be to offer the patient uh, five to 10 of these uh, sessions in the course of one or two years of conventional psychotherapy. And we have seen that in underground settings, for example, that that would work very well. But we would also mix MDMA and intactogen with the hallucinogens like LSD or psilocybin during the course of treatment. So it means the people get first some MDMA sessions to get trust in the beneficial nature of the altered state of consciousness and used by these drugs. And then later on, they might go into LSD or psilocybin for another few sessions. Most patients profit very much from five to 10 sessions and can be treated that way in five to 10 sessions. Also in group therapy settings, which might make it much more economical. That sounds very interesting. And I suppose it's just out of the scope for today's podcast, but just to say that MDMA has shown a lot more promise in durability than classic psychedelics. It seems um, so. But anyway, uh, moving back to patient blinding and methodological challenges. Alongside various issues related to patient outcomes, many clinical trials also face methodological challenges, mainly that of finding an appropriate control in placebo-controlled randomized double-blind trials. In many of these studies, a classic antidepressant like sertraline or escitalopram is given to the control group, whilst the other group of patients receive an actual psychedelic. And as you've already mentioned, this is very problematic because almost all patients will be immediately able to tell whether or not they're on the psychedelic group or in the placebo group, which removes the blinding and sheds doubt on the strength of the results. Can you think of alternative methodology or alternative placebos that we could use to ensure participants are more blinded? Yeah, a very good and important point. Uh, what what we should look out for is the use of active placebos, and that has been done quite a bit, but there's still no real conclusions about it. I myself, in my psilocybin studies, I have uh, worked with a nicotinic acid, which gives you a kind of flush in the face a little bit, and you got a warm feeling in the uh, area of the belly. And so that might some bluff some people uh, with, if, if it is MDMA or not, especially if they have no knowledge about it in advance. Uh, if the patients have some knowledge about the effects of psychedelics, I mean, experiential knowledge, then they might easily detect what's going on. But if you use an active placebo, as I've done, I was quite insecure in some cases if the person has really taken the drug or not. But in my settings, uh, the people who had four hours during the psilocybin trip, which is six, six hours usually, they had more than four hours to lay down on a couch with an eye shade and hearing music. So they are not acting with, interacting with the outside as much, outside world. So if they would interact, you would see much more irritation and you can easily detect what's going on. Um, uh, however, active placebo might be a way out, but we have to specify that much more. And still, there are differences in between the uh, active placebo and the uh, psychedelic drug. Uh, I have seen 
um, in the, the book by Matthew Uram, The Trials of Psychedelic Therapy uh, by Johns Hopkins Press in the US in 2018, a very, very good book. This is why I'm explicitly mentioned that here. Uh, and he has pointed to the fact that unknown to the general public and also to specialists like me, um, there, there were some ongoings in respect to these methodological issues in the US, in the International Institute for Advanced Study, as well as in the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center. And as far as I remember, these guys were about having five groups to be treated. So one with high dose, one with a very low dose active placebo, one with another kind of placebo, one with conventional psychotherapy, not including any psychedelic session, and one without any therapy, you know? So then you could at, at least give an idea what kind of influence, what factor has, or stuff like that. I think that could also be another way out of that problematic issue which is really a significant issue also with other other medications you know we, we could for example very reasonable argue that the, all these so-called significant effects of antidepressant drugs have been produced by their side effects because the side effects are so suggestive of a real effect i mean in respect i feel something you know that if you look at these into these studies, which the few which have been conducted comparing antidepressants with active placebos, giving you just a dry mouse or something like that, you know, they are on the same level, the efficacy uh, results. And that means the pharmaceutical industry, when they have seen these results, they were completely out of active placebos. No, 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 we don't go for active placebos anymore because we don't gather any significant result anymore. And there you can see how much of a problem this is. <laughs> to conclude with an anecdote, uh, so I came across this problem when I uh, designed my study. And I thought by myself, man, I was going through all the literature. Nobody has ever explicitly looked at this question. What's about inducing a forced placebo effect by side effects. So I was thinking that can't be true, that in the whole literature is nothing about it. So I called up the head of the pharmacology department in our university, Hanover Medical School, which is the second largest research medical research facility in Germany. So I called him up. He said, Oli, okay, come over. I'll answer your question. So I, I uh, got over to him, sent, sat in front of him, and he said, I said, yeah, what's about this problem? He said, oh, Dr. Passi, we have a solution for it. And I was wondering, oh, what's the solution? He said, we don't talk about it. <laughs> yeah, this is how the conventional pharmacologists solve these issues. That's awful. That's awful. <laughs> That's really but That's it's true. concerning. Yeah, <laughs> that is very concerning. Um, yeah. And I mean, so I, I can't remember the name of the specific study, but I remember reading somewhere that actually yeah. the extent of the side effects of an antidepressant were predictive of the effects, the psychological effects of them. So it just goes to show the importance of having a proper placebo, um, which I suppose we'll continue to search for within the psychedelic field in the next coming years. Yeah, uh, let me just, uh, sorry for that, but let me just mention that there was a group, a research group in the US, as far as I remember, 
Avulikis was one of the authors, and they have done research with a specific dipropyl tryptamine derivative, which fluoro tryptamine, I think it was. And they have found that this substance imitates all the effects of psychedelics beyond the psychedelic effects. So it means it gives you a little bit more arousal. It makes you feel a little bit altered, but not that much. And so these kinds of substances could be also interesting placebos, but you have to do studies to give them to humans, toxicology studies, etc. That might be too expensive to go for it. But there has been found such a placebo, as far as I remember from the older literature. That is a very interesting one. And we will be discussing non-hallucinogenic psychedelics shortly. Uh, but just before we do that, uh, I think it's worth mentioning two other significant limitations of current psychedelic therapy trials, uh, that being of finance and generalizability, which we also have mentioned. Uh, most studies incorporate around an eight-week regimen involving weekly sessions with a psychiatrist, as well as this, patients, when the patients actually take a psychedelic, as you mentioned, two psychiatrists are on hand for the entire duration of the trip. And if you're taking LSD, this can be up to 12 hours, which would be incredibly expensive. Should psychedelic therapies become more mainstream, the issue of finance will play a key role in how accessible these therapies are. Additionally, there is still doubt as to how generalizable the results of these clinical trials are, as most use a patient population, typically patients with PTSD, depression and anxiety disorder. And you also mentioned that the inclusion criteria is very, very strict and they are removing lots of participants. So the question still remains as to how someone from the general population may react to this type of therapy, which is going to play a huge role if psychedelic therapy were to become more mainstream. I'd like to finish with a slightly more out there question uh, relating to the use of non-hallucinogenic psychedelic compounds. These are substances that bind to the serotonin 2A receptor, thought to be the main mechanism of action for classic psychedelics like LSD, psilocybin and DMT. However, without inducing hallucinations, with the advances in computation and AI, uh, scientists can use structure-based drug discovery to screen thousands of molecules to identify new chemicals that are likely to act in a similar manner to psychedelics. And some recent papers have identified non-hallucinogenic psychedelics, which have already been shown to be promising antidepressant agents, such as 2-bromo-LSD, which is a derivative of LSD with no hallucination effects, which we did a podcast on a while ago. Can you see any potential advantages to using these substances in a clinical setting as opposed to a classic psychedelic, Torsten? Yeah, in general, one could speculate about that and there might be some positive effects, especially if it comes to the so-called neuroplasticity. However, there are also, people don't like to look into these kind of um, contradictions, uh, but there are uh, inconclusive results in respect to neuroplasticity in respect to psychedelics. So the most um, solid evidence comes from Petri dishes as well as um, uh, tiny animals. And therefore I'm not tending to believe as much in these effects. So it means, uh, for example, if you would be able to induce neuroplasticity in a target-oriented or target fashion in the brain, on a more general, in a more general kind of, then you could also, if you have, let's say, you open your brain for more plastic changes. If you are then going through a crude situation, you know, that might also deform your brain, if that's possible. 
Um, usually, it, if you if even the terminology is not, it's kind of crude, non-hallucinogenic psychedelics, which is kind of impossible because psychedelic means, I, I know <laughs> what you mean, Ben, but uh, this is not psychedelic anymore. People are out for these kind of things. Usually, for example, how was LSD discovered? They were out for substances which could heal migraines without with without all these side effects so it means we are looking out for substances with less side effects and more selective effects and this is what the guys are doing right now too so you also have to think about the fact that every substance which will try to be marketed which they want to try to be marketed needs a hundred million dollars to be on the market to become on the market to go through that development process so it's not that easy and even mdma which is on that track since more than 40 years has still problems to go through and that means there will be a lot of hindrances to bring up these substances especially if it comes to chronic brain changes which are not really calculable and a lot of people are really fascinated by the idea that there's neuroplastic changes going on and that the brain might get bigger at this place and might get smaller at this place. For me personally, it is a horrifying imagination to, to think that my brain will be durably or forever altered by the neuroplastic uh, changes induced by a psychedelic. So I'm, I was always very happy that these substances, including cannabis, are not really doing brain changes as far as we know. You know, if it comes to more subtle brain changes, like having other, getting installed other perspectives on your problems, stuff like that, we don't need neuroplasticity as much to explain these kinds of changes because some things could really uh, rearrange your mind. Like, for example, you are always thinking uh, going with an, uh, a scooter is without any danger. I have 35 years of experience and stuff, but then you get into an accident, maybe not by your fault and stuff. Afterwards, you might think about the risk of driving a scooter quite differently. That does not need that much neuroplasticity, I think. It's a usual kind of software restructuring, so to say. So therefore, we don't know. And right now, you are right, there is a kind of hype even about non-psychedelic drugs. They have looked out, which are active at, the, for example, the 5-HT2A um, receptor, um, like bromo-LSD. Meanwhile, there are trials going on looking into anxiety treatment with bromo-LSD. I personally, as a pharmacological expert in the field, I am um, not believing in all of that, but the people are full of wishful thinking these days and want to make money and discover new things, stuff like that. They don't, they don't care about a veteran being skeptical about <laughs> their approach, but uh, I'm, I'm full of hope for them. But, but I personally don't believe in that as much. You might also be out for the fact that uh, some researcher, more significant ones, are also looking out for uh, uh, designs for studies where they can look at psychedelic effects beyond the subjective experience in humans. It means, for example, they would put them under narcosis, the patients, then inject them with psilocybin or LSD and look what, ha what happens about their alcoholic 
habit afterwards. You know, these trials, which they have at least began to, de be began to design, uh, they look a little bit funny to a pharmacologist because if you are putting a person under, an, under the influence of an anesthetic drug or a benzodiazepine as planned in these studies, these drugs eliminate psychedelic effects anyway, if you are conscious or not. So I don't know how their thinking is going on, but maybe they need some uh, self-corrective processes by doing these studies and gaining the empirical evidence. And then they will see, okay, oh, we haven't thought about it really, but let's see what will happen. Well, I suppose we will patiently wait for the results of those studies, hey? No other choice, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, Torsten, I'd like to ask if you have any closing remarks or anything important you'd like to mention about possible complications related to psychedelic therapy before we end today's show. Yeah, I think it's a very important topic. And um, I think we should very much concentrate our efforts on these kind of things to avoid them. And there are also much more complex uh, side effects uh, which are more on the interpersonal level, for example, that people, for example, uh, during an MDMA-assisted session, the therapist might see the patient in a completely different way because the patients might be free of their anxieties and show their all their potentials and beauty, and the, the therapist might fall in love with the patient, for example. Or other things that the connection, the therapeutic relationship might be so much strengthens that it becomes dysfunctional. And as we have seen in Canada in that one trial, that the therapist wasn't able to keep the appropriate distance to the patient after the treatment has been finished and even begun a sexual relationship with that patient. This has been publicized very much about. And these kind of more complex side effects, also uh, megalomanic or therapists becoming megalomanic about their seemingly godlike abilities to induce mystical experiences and so on. We have seen these kind of complications in the past, in Europe, in the US, and so on. There could be a separate podcast even about these kind of uh, side effects, which are more uh, appearing if these uh, substances are used on a more chronic basis, so to say, means on a in a regular fashions by uh, speci specialized therapists. Absolutely. And thank you very much for those remarks, Torsten, and for being on the podcast. Um, in today's episode of the Psychedelic Frontiers podcast, we critically analyzed and questioned the challenges facing psychedelic assisted therapies. Only time will tell if these emerging treatments will become mainstream in the mental health industry and produce robust long term positive effects. However, there certainly is promise. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter and TikTok and your preferred streaming platform to keep up to date with episodes. More information can be found in this episode's description. That's all for now. Thank you and take care.